Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm your co-host, Laura Munoz. And today we have a guest from the biology department, Alyssa Stevens. Welcome, Alyssa. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, we're glad to speak with you as you've just finished your master's in science. So you're a master now. Uh, why don't you tell us <laughs> what you're a master in and what you, what you, what you work on. So, yeah, um, I just wrapped up my master's. Uh, my project was studying uh, the biochemistry of trailose accumulation in the Springfield cricket, which uh, sounds like a lot, but basically uh, these crickets in the fall, when they're exposed to the cold, they accumulate a sugar called trailose. And the whole goal of my project is to try to figure out how they do it. So uh, what I don't know much about these insects, but uh, I, we've interviewed a couple of people that work with squirrels and they go into hibernation and some people that work with birds and they migrate. So where do the insects fall? Like, do they hibernate? Do they migrate? Do they do both? Or what do they need to change their metabolisms during winter? Yeah, so it really depends on the insect. So insects have kind of a wide range of how they can deal with the cold. Some can't deal with it at all, and so they, they get out of here, they go and migrate. Um, some can deal with the cold, but they can't freeze, so they can undergo um, different physiological changes, so they might try to decrease the temperature that they freeze at. So if you're like, you know, normally I freeze at minus six, but I'm going to undergo some changes, maybe accumulate sugar, and now I can freeze at minus 10, which is better. Um, but the third kind of response is the one that we're interested in, which are the insects that can actually survive freezing. So you can freeze them solid, and then when they thaw, they're good. They can go about their business. So in that case, there's, uh, again, a few strategies that they can use. Um, in the case of my cricket, um, one of the things that they do is they accumulate a sugar called trellos. And we think that they accumulate this sugar because it helps protect their cells and tissues when they're frozen. I guess um, is trellos kind of like a, a antifreeze kind of thing? Like it's not not freezing or or, or is, it, is it, it is freezing. It's just not freezing in a way that causes damage. What exactly is that, right? Yeah, so we call them cryoprotectants. So freezing occurs. So our current model is that we think ice forms extracellularly. So ice forms outside of the cells. And in the case of a cryoprotectant like trellos, it might interact with different proteins and molecules to help protect them from the ice. So when you say freeze, you mean that they literally <laughs> like are a bowl of ice? <laughs> so because I know they I know they do have blood. So I guess if they freeze, blood is not flowing to their systems anymore, like everything's static but they still can survive. How, how is that possible? Yeah, so um, the blood in insects, we call it hemolymph, and insects have an open circulatory system. So most of their organs and tissues are kind of just bathed and surrounded by this hemolymph. And so when ice forms, you get that blood is what forms the ice crystals. And yeah, that's a really stressful process for a lot of reasons. And not only do you have to survive freezing, but usually you also have to survive the whole rest of the winter. So um, the insects will undergo a lot of different physiological changes. So 
usually what you'll see is they decrease their metabolic rate. Um, so they're being less active. They need a lot less energy because they're not really moving or doing anything. Um, they also, in a case of trellos, they might accumulate different molecules that helps protect their cells or tissues and things like that. So there's a, there could be a lot going on. <laughs> okay, so these crickets, um, you know, hopping around, doing their regular thing, cricket life, and then and then it gets cold and they freeze. And I'm imagining, you know, a cricket's going to like take a bite of whatever they're eating, and then mid bite they're like, oh no, and freeze. Uh, but but it, maybe it doesn't exactly happen that way because I mean, if I were a cricket. Uh, and I knew I was going to freeze, then maybe I would like anticipate it by going somewhere where I'm not going to be like exposed while I'm frozen. Um, does preparing for being frozen uh, factor into your study or the life of a cricket? For sure. You definitely need to have a period of adjustment. So it's what we call that acclimation period. And these crickets will naturally experience that in the wild. So, and you'll see that in the changing of the seasons. So when you have summer, you get nice hot days, really long, bright days. And then as we get into fall, we start to see a decrease in temperature and we're starting to see a decrease in day length. Um, and then, so that will kind of be the signal from their environment that's like, oh, okay, seasons are changing. I need to start making some changes to my body. And, you know, maybe I need to start stockpiling sugar because winter is coming, things like that. Um, and so you can't just take a cricket from summer conditions and freeze it and expect it to survive. It won't. We've tried it. <laughs> so they need to go through that acclimation period, get everything ready, and then they'll be able to survive freezing. Do they like um, go somewhere? Like, I mean, I know in the lab, it's a bit different, but like in the wild, are they, so now they're preparing their body. They do prepare. They are actually preparing. They know it's coming. Uh, because of the seasonal changes in between that acclimation period but do they actually then like go and sit somewhere different than they would usually um probably not so much during the fall they probably are still um so you have to consider so their eggs will normally hatch towards like the end of summer so they're really young actually in the fall so they're going through a lot of growing stages so they're still interacting with their environment a lot um, but when they start to see those changes in the environment, that's when they're starting to go through um, the changes associated with, oh crap, winter's coming, stuff like that. Um, and so typically they don't necessarily go into other places during the fall, but when it's winter, that's when they'll kind of burrow underground or under leaf litter and things like that. So with that, I would like to know how long the do they leave? Like how many winters does a cricket has to go through? How many times do they have to go through this period? And maybe when they're older, <laughs> maybe they're less good at like surviving winter or preparing themselves for the winter. Yeah, so crickets are what we call their univoltine, which means they basically have one generation per year. So uh, they're called spring field crickets because they, uh, they emerge in the spring and they, become, they molt into adults. Um, that's when you start to hear them sing. So that's why they're, they're spring field because they start singing in the spring. Uh, and then during the summer is when they mate and reproduce um, and they have eggs uh, that will hatch at the end of summer. They are only freeze tolerant when they're at a certain life stage, which is usually what we see with these freeze tolerant insects is it's only one period of their life that they can survive freezing. 
So for some, it's when they're in the larval stage. So when they're, they're still a little like worm, basically. Uh, in the case of crickets, they will hatch and they'll go until about their fifth instar. So when they're kind of like half the size of an adult, um, that's when they can undergo those physiological changes. Um, then they'll burrow underground and then wait until spring to molt into adults. So typically it's only about like a year cycle that they'll survive through. And is it related to size? Like when they're too big, they wouldn't be able to accumulate as much or as many things that they will require in order to support freezing? Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of like a Goldilocks situation where the conditions have to be just right. So if they're younger, then fifth instar, they can't go, they can't become freeze tolerant. Sometimes when they're at the later instar stages, it could be, um, but when they're adults, yeah, they just, it could be a size factor where they can't accumulate to high enough concentrations to protect their tissues. It could be. Um, another thing that comes to mind, I mean, uh, I had the same question as Laura because I'm interested in aging in general. The question is, yeah, uh, their age matters a lot. Um, but another question that I'm thinking of is also um, the environment side. <laughs> Where are these crickets actually? And um, uh, what's the range in which they're actually able to freeze? Like, is, is there a too cold? Yeah, for sure. Um... They're pretty widely distributed across North America. So like you can find them as far down as like Texas. Um, we got our crickets from a colony out in Alberta, um, but they've been growing here at Western for like, I'm not sure how many years now. So if there are regional effects, I'm not sure how much that's really been maintained in our colonies, but it's definitely something that we want to look more into is well, is there any more sensitivity or is there more cold hardiness in a population that's, you know, regularly exposed to really cold conditions versus a cricket from like Texas, who probably stays pretty warm most of the year. Um, in terms of what they can survive, uh, they're not the most like freeze tolerant. So they typically freeze at about minus six degrees. So that's when we first see temperatures as low as minus 12 and they can be frozen for about a week. So pretty decent time, but yeah, they do, I think need that thawing period in between. I guess to follow up with that, um, the, um, where, so now like, I mean, they, they're distributed broadly but then within the regions that they do live, like what I'm also wondering what niche they actually hold. Cause I don't actually, I mean, I don't see them around that much. Uh, I imagine that they're like on farms where they grow stuff and they're like eat, eating whatever's on the farm. Are they agriculturally relevant and what, what's their like specific niche in the zones that they, they do live? Yeah, so I would say it's also pretty broad. I mean, even here in London, if you go walking around campus or on any kind of nature path, you don't usually see them because they're pretty small, um, but you can usually hear them. So typically you'll hear them in the spring. You might hear another species of cricket in the fall. Um, and I find it's, it's usually if you're not working with insects, it's very easy to miss them because you're not really looking out for them. Um, but a pretty easy way to tell of what's in your area is to take a net. You can even get one from like Dollarama 
And as you're walking along like a path, just swing it against some like tall grass and things like that. And it's actually pretty surprising how much you'll catch or the variation of insects that you'll catch. That's super cool and makes me wonder, now we talk about the what, so like, what are you doing? What are you researching? And now I am wondering about the hows. Like, how do you investigate <laughs> these crickets? So you go out into the field and you collect the crickets during different points of time? Or do you do your experiments in a laboratory under like certain conditions and you force those crickets to go into freezing? How, how do you do your research? Yeah, so we grow our cricket colonies in the lab, um, which has its pros and cons. You know, it's definitely a lot easier than having to go out in the field and catch them every year. Uh, but it also means that we have a steady population year round. Um, so we keep them in a greenhouse in these incubators. And so normally they're kept in pretty nice conditions at like 25 degrees Celsius. So they're pretty happy. Uh, and then once they're at their fifth instar, we take them out and we put them through a cold acclimation. So we put them in a smaller incubator and over six weeks, we gradually decrease the temperature and the day length. So we kind of simulate the fall conditions that they would experience in the wild. So you're over there, you're simulating only temperature, temperature changes. Are you also simulating like, for example, light, the amount of light they're exposed to, or for example, food? Are you changing? Because I guess like in spring you have certain kind of berries, but then in the fall you probably don't have as many or like, do you also take that into account or you just go with whatever, with like a strict diet <laughs> that you yeah. have prepared for them? <laughs> it's a good question. So um, in terms of the conditions, so we have they have to be exposed to both a decrease in temperature and photo period. So you need both temperature and day length to change. If you do just one, they won't become freeze tolerant. So you need both of them. And then in terms of the food, it's actually something that we notice just like informally. So we notice that they tend to reproduce a lot less during like the fall and winter. So even though they're being kept in warm temperatures year round, it's kind of just like their biological clock. It's like, hey, you probably shouldn't be reproducing at this time. So we were seeing that our populations were decreasing, which obviously isn't great for experiments. So what we ended up doing was we actually ended up changing their diet a little bit. So we ended up adding a bit more protein through cat food and introducing um, some more greens from like organic spinach and stuff. Um, and we found that um, that really helped uh, bolster their diet and uh, the reproductive rate. Is there, um, is there like some application that can be um, done with the, with the results that you've come up with? Like, is there something we can do with these crickets or that we should be doing with these crickets? Um, the knowledge that they have this type of freeze tolerance? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, certainly it's applicable to the field of freeze tolerance as is. Um, Trailose is... Uh, I mean, trailose is the blood sugar in insects. So by default, it's gonna play a role in all insects and their survival. Um, but what's really interesting is that in these insects, at least it also plays a second role, which is potentially as a cryoprotectant. Now outside of insects, trailose is also a really big player in the field of cryopreservation. 
So that could be in the medical field with organs. Um, I've even seen it actually on like industry. So I read a paper about like trying to use a trailer solution to stop ice forming on plane wings. So definitely has a really broad um, application to the fields of cryopreservation and kind of understanding how trellos is produced from all stages, you know, from it being made, transported, and then broken down uh, is really important in kind of just our fundamental understanding of trellos itself. So is this molecule only produced on crickets or is it like specific for insects or do we humans produce it as well? So all insects use trellos as their blood sugar. Um, it's, we don't produce it, um, although a lot of like animals and plants will have um, trehalase, the enzyme to break it down, but we don't naturally produce it. Um, so you'll typically see it in plants and insects that will produce trehalose. But all insects have trehalose. It's just not necessarily all of them use it as a cryoprotectant. Well, um, it sounds like this is going to be uh, valuable results to have um, for studies going forward. Um, I'm kind of wondering now, um, you know, it's a, it's a long, a lot of effort to do a, a study like this, especially using, you know, live animals, you have to track their life cycle and you're, you're beholden to their life cycle. So it's a lot of work. Um, what motivated you to get involved in this lab and, and embark in a study like this? Yeah, um, I was actually first introduced to this lab at a conference, um, and I had kind of dabbled in the idea of studying insects in the past, but never really made any solid kind of decisions. Uh, but then I went to a conference at the very end of my undergraduate degree, and I saw these bug talks. I was like, oh man, this is kind of cool. And I saw more bug talks. I was like, oh no, this looks really cool. And by chance, at a mixer at the conference, I happened to meet Brent, uh, my supervisor, and we just happened to meet there. And it kind of felt like everything just fell into place. Um, insects just seemed really cool to study. And I thought that the story of following Trelos and how it's metabolized all throughout acclimation seemed really cool. And like it would wrap up to be a really nice uh, story. So now that you finish your master's, you can uh, think retrospective. And since I have never worked with like living entities <laughs> before, <laughs> I'm, I am wondering like, what do you consider was the hardest part of your research? The part that you thought, this is not gonna work. I don't know how to continue <laughs> with this because I can imagine you having so many problems given that you have to make sure that these crickets were alive and like there were, turning into whatever you want them to turn. So what was the hardest part of your project? Well, you definitely had to be careful with time management um, because they have, in order to be freeze tolerant, they have to go through at least a six week acclimation period. So you had to be really careful that you're planning all your sample groups well in advance so that you could finish what you needed to get done before any major deadlines. So, um, making sure that you know you staggered your different time points and things like that so that you're still making progress was uh, definitely something that you had to get down pretty early. Um, but I would actually say the most challenging part of my project uh, actually didn't really have anything to do with the crickets um, themselves. 
uh, it was actually some of the techniques that I used. So I used a lot of enzyme assays during my project. Uh, I think I used a total of like five or six that I worked with. And I had very little to no experience in enzyme assays prior to my master's. So there was definitely a learning period that I had to go through, especially because the very first enzyme assay that I worked with was measuring trailose, arguably the most important assay of my entire project, and I couldn't get it to work. <laughs> and yeah, which, you know, as you know, in science, things don't always go well, um, but it was definitely a very challenging period. Um, you know, I, I did all the things I could think of doing, you know, looked at papers, reached out to my fellow lab mates, and um, it, it still took a long time until I got that assay working. So I think building up the, the mental strength to be able to, you know, keep pushing on to, you know, be able to work on other projects at the same time to, you know, kind of get you through there was um, it's definitely a challenge, but I think one that I've really been able to grow because of. And now I'm wondering, your master's is like around two years, right? Like, and we were in a pandemic for two years. So your entire master's was kind of during the pandemic, no? So how, how were you able to like reach your, how, how was that like dynamics with your team and to ask questions and to help them with your lab problems? Yeah, so I, I was able to get through, I think, almost a full two semesters before we, we hit the pandemic. So it was actually right at the time that I was about to do my uh, proposal assessment. So just about the halfway mark, that was when we got completely shut down. And so I lost a good three to four months of not being able to do any lab work because we weren't allowed in the labs. And because my project is so research heavy, that really set me back. Um, so it was kind of a setback there and also a setback from my assays not working. So it, it, it was definitely, um, you know, to the line a little towards the end of my project where I had to really make sure I was managing my time and prioritizing things well to be able to get done all the experiments that I needed to get done. Well, um, it's, I'm sure that it was worth it. By this point, if you come through um, all this turmoil <laughs> and uh, persevered through it and successfully completed your master's, then uh, I'm sure you've gained skills that are going to be valuable for whatever you're going to do next. And obviously that begs the question, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> do you have ideas for the future of uh, Alyssa Stevens? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there's definitely been challenges along the way, but it's, it's almost the main thinking back of who I was two years ago and looking at myself now. You know, I've really been able to grow in terms of critical thinking, um, my ability to manage multiple tasks, uh, and also just resilience, you know, being able to get through tough situations. Um, and in terms of next steps, um, I'm currently applying to jobs and I do actually have a job offer, which is nice and exciting. Um, and I'm looking, I think, towards the field of conservation and working with wildlife. So kind of being able to apply my skills, and my knowledge, and actually be able to go out in the field and apply that to try and make a, a difference. So are you planning on continue working with insects or are you changing your subject of, of study? 
Um, so I would say I'd like to still continue with insects. Um, I'm definitely open, I think, and I'd like to work with more wildlife. So, you know, getting to work and be more familiar with plants and birds and, and things like that. Um, but I think definitely in my, in my heart, I hold a special place for insects. And why is that? Like, uh, why are you so interested in insects? Uh, what's the, the, the part of them that you find so interesting? I think in a way they're kind of like the misunderstood unsung heroes of the world. There's so many of them. There's so much variety and beauty that I think a lot of people tend to miss. And so when you kind of get introduced to this world, it's, it's really eye-opening to how so many small but really amazing things can exist um, and co-side, coexist with us. I almost want to ask, like, if, do you have like a pet insect? <laughs> I want, or what's your, what's actually your favorite insect? I mean, it's probably easiest to just say spring cricket, <laughs> but maybe there's other insects you're also keen about. You know, I just, I'm too indecisive. I don't think I can pick. There's, there's some great ones out there. <laughs> yeah. I kind of wish, uh, yeah, I, I could wish growing up, I feel like that's a kind of a cool pet you could have. You could, you could take care of insects. I, I think I had like an ant farm once. That was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I had a, a, a stick bug as a pet when I was younger. Oh. And uh, survived quite a long time. I was, I was quite proud of it. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> uh, well, we're, uh, we're just getting close to the end of time here. Um, if there are any other bug enthusiasts or otherwise who want to... Uh, find out what you're up to um where on the interwebs can they go to catch up with you yeah so um i do have a twitter so my handle's at lissa stevens so just my name without the first a uh and if you want some more cool bug content uh i help run the social media team for the entomological society of ontario you can find us at entsocaunt on twitter uh, as well as on facebook and uh if that's not enough, I post um, insect-related art every Friday. So I think that's a pretty good incentive to check it out. I know I will. That sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming on, Alyssa. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, with that, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame. My co-host was Laura Minos Biena. Uh, we've been speaking with Alyssa Stevens, and this episode was also produced by me. Um, if you'd like to be involved in the show, um, you want to get in contact with us, you can email us, gradcastradio at sogs.ca, um, and you can also find our social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Gradcast Radio. Um, probably listening to us on a podcast right now. Uh, we're available on all sorts of podcast apps, including like Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, etc. But you can also check out our website for all our past episodes, hundreds of episodes there, gradcast.ca. Uh, and we're also on the radio uh, every week here local in London, Radio Western 94.9 FM. Um, and certain episodes are also on YouTube, so you can check us out there for those. Thank you for listening and have a great night.